everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm, oh man, you're about to get your, your brain's about to just buzz and sizzle. Um, right now we're in a series called For the Love of Health and Wellness, and it's been just good for me. I don't know how else to say it. Just um, healthy and holistic and nurturing and nourishing and all the things all the things you would want out of health and wellness, like none of the damaging messaging and only that which is good for our minds and souls and bodies. And so today's guest, you guys, um, he's actually in the realm of health, not not a vein of it you would immediately think about, but that has an extraordinary impact on our lives in every single way. And so today we're talking a little bit about career health, which is a, this is not small. This is a very big deal. I can't tell you how much we actually discuss mental and emotional health today. This is this is a lot of internal work. Um, career health is so vital. I mean, for, for those of us who work, I mean, we spend more time in our jobs than with our families, right? So maintaining a really healthy, not just life and outlook, but expectation and trajectory is really vital to how well we are doing or not. Listen to this. So today, my guest is Rich Carlgard. If his name is not automatically familiar to, do, to you, um, I will tell you that Rich is the publisher of Forbes magazine. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> it's doing okay. I believe that Forbes is going to make it. Um, so not only is he a really gifted communicator, which you'll see, um, he's obviously known for the way he breaks down business trends with he's very witty and honest, but, um, and he's all over the place. He's on TV. He's, he writes in the wall street journal. I mean, he's a super successful entrepreneur. Um, so he actually very deeply understands health here, but here's why I'm so excited to talk to him today. This is such a vibrant conversation. Rich just wrote a book called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Okay, so uh, this is the book we need right now in our crazy culture. I told him at one point in this interview, I about nodded my head off. I mean, I love that the president of Forbes, whose literal job is to scout out who is doing big things in the world, is putting us in timeout with actually years of research backing this book, telling us why we are not failures because we didn't invent a startup and make a billion dollars before we turned 30. Um, not only this, wait till you hear how he talks about our kids. Um, even if you struggle to really figure out how career and health and trajectory affects your life as much. It totally does for me. I mean, I, he was zinging me the entire time. This is so important for us as parents. Um, he, a great deal of his work is centered on our kids' generations and generation how burned out, exhausted, tired, and depressed they are, um, more so than any generation before them with the heavy set of expectations put on their shoulders. We really, really dig this out today. Uh, I, I, 
I took copious notes while we were talking. So his thoughts on this are very practical. They are down to earth. And so this is going to encourage you. And I mean, at one point he's like, look, we get better with time, not worse. We are more of an asset the older we get, not less. And so he's really turning a lot of these ideas um, on their head. And he has a lot to talk to us about parents and how to raise kids who are not crushed with this invented pressure um, that their generation now has to has to shoulder, uh, but rather to kind of set them free into their like glorious and beautiful young lives. You're going to love this conversation. Um, it, it hit me from a dozen different points. Um, I'm really grateful for the emotional and mental and social and spiritual health tips that I just learned in the last hour. So please enjoy this really vibrant conversation with the smart and interesting, rich Carl Gard. Um, I am just thrilled Rich, to have you on the podcast, like really honored um, that you would join us, really honored that you would speak into my listening community. Thanks for being here this morning. The honor is entirely mine, Jen. I mean, you're a deal. You know, you're a big deal. And so um, I, I just mentioned to you kind of offline before we, we hopped on the recording that um, your area of expertise applies to uh, not just me, but a ton of my listeners. And as we sort of think about health and wellness inside of our careers, uh, we don't have enough um, people teaching us. We don't have enough speakers in our life. Like Generally as women, I don't know how you find this for men. I'd love to hear your opinion, but um, it seems like a lot of um, language and messaging aimed at women in general, regardless of our career credentials, tends to be more about um, how we look, um, what we weigh, and what it means to maybe be a mother or a wife. And so I find less robust uh, instruction on career health. I don't know if, if you, I mean, obviously men have a different um, scorecard, don't you think? Yeah, possibly that's true. So I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I sure as heck spent four years interviewing the best people that I could find and coming up with the best, most inspiring stories to address not only the problem, how we got into this mess of putting an insane level of pressure on our kids and young adults and mothers coming back into the workforce, feeling crummy about the way that the workforce looks at them. And um, and so I'm here really to be, I, I've really become kind of evangelical about what I've learned because I shared my book at age 25, I was a mess. I couldn't hold a, mm. uh, an adult's responsible kind of a job. And uh, we might go back on that to, so I can explain oh, yeah. just we're, how we're low I sank. For sure. But what really catalyzed me, in fact, what radicalized me was in 2014 and 2015 school year in and around Palo Alto, where I live, right. that there were six high school student suicides. And when you looked at the kids who had killed themselves, they were all B plus A minus students right. who felt inferior hmm. because there were students doing better. And I thought, this has to be confronted. Hmm. We have to look at what is causing this mania for early achievement. Hmm. And so that began four years of research, and it really changed my own life and the way that I look at the world and the way I want to spend the rest of my career. Because I've had a great career at Forbes, I'm still at Forbes, right. where I spent 30 years writing about the intersection of technology, 
businesses and economics. Yeah. And something pulled me outside of that triangle to write about this. Mm. Okay, I cannot wait to sort of pick all those threads apart and have a good look at them. But I wonder if first, would you just indulge me and walk us a little bit through your march to Forbes? Because you kind of mentioned this, you, you actually had quite a few jobs along the way, which honestly seems kind of like the normal way people find their way into careers. There's nothing wild or crazy about that. Um, Although we don't talk about that as much these days, as you mentioned. And so for you, as you kind of explored your way to the top, more or less, um, what what did you learn about yourself and the kinds of work you enjoyed? Like, how would you assess that sort of path to where you are now? Well, sure. I was born and raised in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, I went to my local junior college. That tells you right away that I was not a superstar in sports or Mm. academics or anything else. By a series of factors, flukes, I would call them, I got into Stanford after junior college. I didn't Mm. deserve to get in. But I will say that Stanford back in the day, and we're talking about the 1970s, was a much easier institution to get into than today. Anyway, I Mm. got in, and rather taking advantage of that supremely lucky break, I continued to struggle. I Mm. took the easiest classes that I could find, and I still barely graduated with the minimum number of units. So at age 25, when my college roommates were in law school, one was getting a an advanced degree in chemical engineering. He would work on the space shuttle program. Wow. Another one was getting his Doctor of Divinity at Fuller Theological Seminary. Yeah. He'd become a clinical psychologist. I was capable of holding a job no greater than dishwasher, temp typist, and security guard. And I remember when it really hit home that I hadn't bloomed at all, and mm. I had, in fact, squandered everything. I felt utter shame about this. I had a I had a graveyard shift at a trucking firm okay. and I was making my security guard rounds and I heard a dog barking and I swung my flashlight around and looked across the fence and there was a Rottweiler looking at me and I was mm-hmm. looking at him and and uh, and it suddenly occurred to me at age 25 my professional colleague was a dog <laughs> and, and, you know and to rub it in, months later, Steve Jobs, also 25, would take Apple public. Sure, yeah. Now, that used to be more common, Jen, as you pointed out. It yeah. used to be more common and acceptable that people had slow starts. Yep. There was no social media where kids could compare the, the way they feel on the inside about themselves mm. with the curated outsides of totally. the other kids. There was no permanent record of every mistake that you had ever made, which is now lives forever on social media. And then we've got this insane conveyor belt, as I call it, where we think that the whole object of a teen's life is to get into the most elite university they can. And you back that up and there's just this extraordinary pressure on kids to test well, to get 4.3s in advanced placement courses because mm. god forbid a 38's not going to do it right and then to engage in extracurriculars not because you love the sport or the activity but because it will look good on your college applications it's all and real. what we've done is create uh we, this is contributed mightily to these rising rates of anxiety depression and tragically even suicide mm. that we see today so it's not having the outcome that educators and worried parents thought it would that's right it's 
causing more harm than it is doing good. I'm curious what you discovered in your research. Um, when, when Can you point to either a time or a season or some factor? When did we start normalizing the narrative that um, our kids needed to achieve early and achieve big? I mean, when did this start switching forward? Because the truth is, not only is this the way that we are absolutely pushing our kids, it's what they're hearing from universities. They are saying these are our these are the credentials we're requiring from you. And so what do you think? Why did that shift happen? And when did that shift happen? Yeah, there's a college admissions counselor in the L.A. suburbs who is telling parents, and I can't believe this, it breaks my heart. He's telling parents to tell their kids that they shouldn't expect to see daylight for two, two years. Gosh, Can you imagine no, that? No. I think that's borderline criminal and maybe not so borderline. Hmm. I, I kind of attribute it to the way the economy has been evolving over the last 20 or 25 years, hmm. exacerbated by the 2008-2009 financial calamity, sure. the subsequent recovery, which until now is pretty slow. Hmm. And, and all of that meeting with the, the largest population bulge that has hit our country, the millennials. So you've got all these terrified millennials and all of these terrified parents thinking, hmm. well, if the economy is now rewarding two industries over and above everything else, what are hmm. they? They're technology, a certain kind of technology, internet technology, web technology, right. software, and high-end financial services like investment banks, hedge funds, hmm. venture capital firms. And you step back and you look at, well, what do these, what do these high-paying industries recruit for? Well, they recruit for people who got near-perfect SAT scores yeah. and at least got into an elite college, even if they, because they were more entrepreneurial in nature, later yeah. dropped out. And so we've created this SAT GPA oligarchy that has replaced what used to be a healthy kind of meritocracy. That's good. And as I point out in the book, I don't. you can't put the finger on any one person or institution mm -hmm. It's a conspiracy that we've all created, mm. but it's time to say we've so overshot on this that we've got to, you know, we've got to call time out. Imagine you're raising um, a son or a daughter, yeah. and and that son or daughter has the gift of being the, the world's greatest carpenter, mm. and um, but they've never been exposed to it because nobody in the family has ever been a carpenter, and everything about the conveyor belt, none of it would reveal that kids strengths. Right. All it would reveal is probably that kid doesn't test well. Maybe he has what we wrongly call ADHD today simply because mm -hmm. he doesn't like to sit still. Uh, he looks out the window. Um, all of these things. And so rather than this kid being, being measured and encouraged for his strengths, he gets this idea that he's some kind of a second-rate citizen That's right. uh, compared to people who are getting the great test scores and the great grades in university admissions. Hmm. It's so frustrating. As I'm listening to you talk, and I'm sitting here at my desk, and my head is just nodding and nodding. I have one of those kids. I have five kids, if you can imagine such a thing. And I've got one of those. And his strengths are just different. He's got a different kind of mind. He thinks differently. I'm wondering... I don't know if your research took you this far, but is there any other culture on the planet telling us the opposite story right now? Or has Western capitalism drowned it all out? Well, uh, I'm all for Western capitalism, but, sure. but I'm also all for recognizing when, when capitalism or the free market is overshot in one direction. And you know, if, if you look at the university system over the last century, 
you see that the rise of the IQ test and then it's, it's uh, the SAT test, which is really a longer, more practical implementation of the early IQ test, they did a great job, actually, of breaking open the university system to people of merit rather than people who were born into wealth and had the connections. And so that was good. It only became bad when it's so overshot and people started gaming the system. And you had middle class families feeling like they were pressured to spend tens of thousands of dollars on SAT tutors and all the rest. And kids were essentially being asked to trade their natural God-given curiosity mm. for a determined focus. And uh, that's what we really need to question. And it, it, I think it's really picked up speed. And it's rippled in, in so many countless ways through society. Carol Dweck, who wrote a great book called Mindset, perhaps you've talked yeah. to her. If you haven't, you should. A uh, wonderful uh, book about yep. why uh, we should cultivate a growth mindset uh, as opposed to a fixed mindset yeah. where we believe that whatever we are now will forever be fixed for good or bad. And she said the kids she sees to Stanford today, and unlike when I got in on a fluke back in the 70s, you really have to buckle down to get in today. Sure. And they take only 3% of the people that apply. Yeah. And it's basically the, the SAT superstars and the 4.0 plus advanced yeah. placement courses people. And Carol Dweck said, the freshmen I see today are exhausted and brittle, and they don't want to mar their perfect records. Well, what kind of a what kind of an end product is that? Totally, so it, needs, it needs to be questioned. And parents, um, parents, yeah, you put it perfectly. Parents have been tricked into this, mm. and they've been talked away against their instincts. Anybody that's had um, kids, and anybody that's had, uh, our, we have two kids that are adopted. But you know, you have five kids. They're all they're all different, but they're yeah. all divine creations right. you know they were given they were given gifts uh and what what a shame that our contemporary culture tends to bury the gifts of the many while it only discovers the gifts of the few mm. i really appreciate your work here and um i'm curious if it's catching flight um, with other important innovators and with the people who make the rules. And I mean, I know this is a huge question and I'm jumping ahead, but what, what's the hope here? I mean, this is a really big ship to turn really, really big ship. What's your prediction or what do you see as the path forward to sort of stop having the tail wag the dog and maybe get a little bit more in feasible control of this out of control machine? I think there are a lot of good practices around the world that we might think about trying at least on a local level to see if they work. And then there are some interesting developments in the United States among major employers that I want to bring out that are very positive and life-affirming. Mm -hmm. Some of the interesting examples around the world is that Finland doesn't expose kids to reading, writing, and arithmetic until they're seven years old. I read Under that. the belief that kids should be kids, that they're these naturally curious discoverers, and that we, uh, and what a mistake to label those that can't sit still, is suffering from ADHD and then, you know, give them Ritalin. 95% of the Ritalin prescriptions in the whole world are given to U.S. kids. How are we biologically different? Great point. I believe, uh, I've become a be strong believer that we need a revival of skilled trades mm. in, in public schools. Only one out of 20 
public schools has a skilled trades track today. Hmm. And skilled trades, as Mike Rowe and others sure. have pointed out, you know, are, can be really, really good paths. I'm a big believer in gap years. To take hmm. a gap year, if you're going to go to college, take a gap year between graduating from high school and entering college, take two years. Hmm. Or uh, many, uh, I'm not a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, but I'm a big admirer of the, the, the two-year Mormon missions. Uh-huh that students go on um, from uh, generally 20, after yeah. their sophomore year and before their junior year. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're graduating, Brigham Young and other places like that are graduating seniors at age 24. Sure. And once they've been out in the world doing something that, you know, isn't all that fun, maybe, hmm. and they, they might have to suffer for it, but they learn along the way. And then I, I think we should open up the discussion for mandatory military service, or if you don't like military, uh, there should be an alternative in civilian service because Mm -hmm. countries that have it, like Israel, Singapore, Switzerland, Sweden, and others, they they have better outcomes for their young adults. Less likely to uh, develop alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, less likelihood to go out and commit crime. So there are many ways Mm. where we can take the human being as they are constructed and deal with that wonderful uh, potential and develop that wonderful potential in ways that are not just treating kids like a robot on a conveyor belt. Mm. That is so interesting. And it is interesting to look at the rest of the world and just look at the data. I mean, ideology aside, we can simply look at outcomes and get a pretty clear idea um, of the two varied trajectories, the one that we're on, the one that some of the rest of the world is on. everybody, Jen breaking in for just a second. I am, as you know, a huge advocate for counseling and feel like sometimes we just need a little guidance from a trusted source who can help us look at things objectively and find a way forward. So BetterHelp Counseling, it's an online resource that offers licensed professional counselors, and they're specialized in issues like depression and stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, grief, honestly, you name it so much more. Um, You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, absolutely confidential online environment. Uh, You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions or chats or texts with your therapist. And so best of all, it is truly affordable, which hinders a lot of us from good counseling. And so for you guys, the listeners of the For the Love podcast, BetterHelp is giving you 10% off your first month with the discount code for the love. So if you're needing a little help getting to that good change in your life, go to betterhelp.com slash for the love. Okay. So one more time, betterhelp.com slash for the love using the code for the love. Okay. Back to our show. I'm curious a little bit closer in, I mean, as you really funneled into the idea of blooming later, did you find any scientific difference between like an early achiever's brain or a late bloomer's? Um, Is this a personality thing? Did you discover any reason at all why it appears some people are just born with a kind of very high ambition and drive and some others take their time and wander a little bit more? 
Well, that's a great question, and it's a deep question, and it gets you into the eternal debate about nature versus nurture, and that nature versus nurture dichotomy gets played out in that psychologists and, and neuroscientists don't always agree. Hmm. Even if they agree on the right answer, they, 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 they're in a turf war that they fight uh, that it's not enough to have the right answer, which we all want, and good suggestions, and it's how you got there. So I, I've spent four years doing this because I wanted to make everything in late bloomers academically and scientifically defensible. Hmm. I didn't just want it to be my own opinions. Now, you know, picking some of the stories I did, and you can find my opinion in there. I mean, you find my opinion in the early part of the book, very outraged mm -hmm. that we've created this conveyor belt system. You find my opinion coming out in the middle chapters about a growing sense of hope that neuroscience, some of the emerging neuroscience, like the great study that led by Laura Germain at Harvard, published in 2015, along with MIT and Mass General Hospital, that asks a simple question, at what age do we cognitively peak? And it mm -hmm. yields a very complex and I think exceedingly hopeful answer. And that is, well, it depends what kind of cognitive abilities you're, you're talking about. Great point. If it's the, abil if it's the ability to um, have a rapid synaptic processing speed and working memory, all the things that make you really good at sitting down and taking a three-hour standardized test, sure. or all the things that make you really good at doing uh, a software programming under time pressure, yeah, those peak in their 20s. Then when we get in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, a whole range of neurological capabilities from deeper pattern recognition, empathy and compassion, communication skills, really began to kick in. And then when we get into our 50s, 60s, and 70s, that which we call wisdom really begins to kick in. Mm. And uh, I found this amazing maverick neuropsychologist at NYU, Elkanah Goldberg, who even thinks there's a neurological explanation for wisdom, which he basically boils down to these neural pathways between the left and right hemispheres of the brain that continue to grow and grow and grow throughout our lives as long as we take care of our physical health and as long as we commit to staying engaged learners. Yeah, I mean, our, our experience confirms what you are saying. Um, I, we can even say, I'm in my 40s, and I see those um, sort of skills and gifts developing um, sort of in a continuous arc forward um, positively, and there's room for that, there's space for that, and those are... Uh, those are assets, you know, as oh, we huge. Look at, yeah, huge assets as we look at our careers and our, and our past and what we decisions what, that we put into play later in life. That is a sincere, sincere advantage, right? It's a huge advantage. And I think it particularly applies to um, mothers. Let's just use a common example that a mother exits the workforce in her mid or late 20s has and raises children, is the primary, primary caregiver of the children, and then comes back, let's say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, right. back into the workforce. And think about that, mom. Think about the evolution of her brain toward all of these executive functioning skills that only began to kick in in our 30s, 40s, and 50s. Hmm. Think about all the real-world experience. Who's a better negotiator? 
Totally. You know, of hostile parties. Totally. <laughs> than, than a mother. Um, who's a better Who's a better manager? Who's a better multiprocessor? Hmm. All of those things. And we've got to start a revolution here so that employers are acknowledging that. And yeah, they'll 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 uh, they'll mouth the right words. They'll say hmm. all the right pieties about that. But in fact, that mother is coming back into the workforce is competing against people, men and women, who don't have that quote-unquote hole in their resume right? and therefore is a disadvantage. So corporations can say all they want, but they're not living up their virtuous talk. Hmm. So we need a revolution there, and there are some wonderful revolutionaries out there, like Carol Fishman Cohen, who was an investment banker, stopped out, had four kids, got into the workforce Later, she was an early blooming superstar, and when she came back in, um, she had a hard time convincing anybody that she had any worth at all. And over time, she felt what she called a shattering loss of confidence. So what she did, she said, there must be other uh, parents and, and, and mothers who are in the same boat. She started a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts called I Relaunch, and it's kind of part support group, part skills training, part counseling. Because it's important to realize the the person you were when you left the workforce, let's say in your 20s, to have and raise children, and the person you are now in your 40s coming back in are different people. Your cognitive profile has evolved. Hmm. So one of the things is don't go back and try to be the person you were. You know, aim for the person you're becoming. And uh, so they have a lot of counseling around that. This movement is catching on. Hmm. In Silicon Valley, uh, Beth Kawasaki and some other people are doing the same thing. So I think this is a wonderful response. And then we need, and then employers. Exactly. I think that we've got to start a revolution among employers yeah. that, that gets both at, the ki- both at the kids who are not superstars, according to the SAT and according hmm. to grades, and, and, and uh, parents returning to the workforce that don't sideline these people. These people are enormously valuable. Sure. And, and you may talk the right language here, but you set up these HR screens so they can't even get past the screen hmm. to get an interview because they've got, you know, in the case of a returning parent, they've got a quote, quote unquote, hole in their resume. Yeah. Or in the case of the young kid who is not the superstar who may blossom into a superstar, at, at, at a moment in time when they were measured and fitted for all this, they, they you know, they didn't, the, the fitting system didn't catch those kids at their mm. best. Mm. I wish everybody in the world could hear you talk about this. Um, I think your work is obviously one cog in the wheel of forward progress. And um, and then there's just all this incredible data. And I love that you're putting it out into the world to say, look at all these examples. I mean, look at this, you know, behavioral science example and look at this cognitive example and then look at these real life examples. They're very, very compelling. I'm curious if you found in your research, was there any particular pattern for late bloomers that they tend to follow as they kind of march toward success later in life rather than earlier? Yeah, I'll give you the example of two uh, women that I hugely admire. One is, this, uh, this this is a woman that I would elevate into sainthood. Her name is Jeannie Courtney, and at age 50, she started a therapeutic boarding school for at-risk teenage girls. Wow. And the reason I know Jeannie Courtney well and my wife knows her well 
is that we sent our daughter mm. to Jeannie's school because our daughter was just overwhelmed with anger mm. and was causing disruption in school and at home. And Jeannie started Spring Ridge Academy at age 50. What was her background? Was she an early blooming super academic superstar? No. She was um, she was a she was an eighth grade teacher hmm. and picked up a lot of practical knowledge. Then she and her husband ran a video store really? for several years. Then uh, when her uh, aging father started losing it a little bit, she helped him with his manage a few of his rental properties. So think about this. She was working with eighth graders. She was learning business, you know, how to keep a business alive at a video rental store and then how to negotiate on, on the property stuff. And it all came together at age 50 and she started Spring Ridge Academy. And by the way, she was a voracious reader ah. of, of books. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, anything, still is anything that could help her. And so she found, um, you can imagine without a formal background, either sure. educationally or in terms of her career, um, it might have been a little difficult, but she raised, she found somebody who really believed in her cause, and she put everything she had on the line and started it and created what, what many regard as a, as a world-class hmm. therapeutic boarding school for, for troubled teenage girls. Jeannie wow. is a late bloomer in every sense. Yeah. Now, another one is from Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon Valley, of course, is ground central for lionizing the early achievers like Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, et cetera, et cetera. It has a downside. Um, I believe that the that the Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, hmm. uh, who was a supreme early achiever, learned Mandarin when she was you know in grade school. Wow. Uh, uh, got all these kind of scholarships, et cetera, et cetera. I believe she got trapped by her early blooming image of self. And wow. when things begin to go sideways at Theranos, the technology didn't work. Rather than calling time out and telling everybody, let's get this right, she doubled down and, mm. and, uh, and now it's sort of a, a big crash and burn. But Diane Green, this is really kind of says something about the media, you know, that the media will elevate an Elizabeth Holmes because she was young and good looking yeah. and dynamic yeah. and all of that. And, and, and many people haven't heard of Diane Green. Well, Diane Green was a co-founder of VMware back in the 90s. Okay. It has a market value today of about $55 billion. Wow. And then until January was the CEO of Google Cloud at age 64. Hmm. Hmm. Now, Diane Green, Diane Green was a, a little, as a little girl, grew up on the Maryland shore, uh, loved to catch fish, uh, learned how to sail a dinghy. Um, she created some little sailing competitions for the, for the tiniest sailboats. She went off and <clears throat> worked at Coleman Camper for hmm. a while. Then, uh, <clears throat> she had, I think, a civil engineering degree or something like that. She worked in the offshore oil business for a while, mixing it up with the rough men. And then at age, in an, at age 33, as she likes to say, I felt it was time to grow up. <laughs> she went back and got advanced degrees in computer science. Then in her, at age 43, co-founded VMware and, um, and, and led it to glory. Interestingly, again, some of the burdens that women face that men don't. The board eventually replaced her as CEO because she wasn't out there enough. Hmm. She wasn't one of these dynamic spokespeople 
asks people. Right. Well, she never sought out to do that. By the way, she created a culture at VMware where she herself was CEO, went home at six o'clock every night, and when she was in town, made sure she was there for dinner with her family. Oh, I love that. And had everybody, wow. you know, gave permission to everybody in the organization to do that. I mean, okay. VMware is a great, great company today. Sure. She set it on the right moral and ethical as well as business path. So I think that Di it's the Diane Greens that we need to hold up hmm. as the great examples in, in Silicon Valley. And because she's quiet and unassuming, as brilliant and accomplished as she is with all those post 40 accomplishments of her hmm. you know she doesn't fit the profile of what the media likes when they look at women entrepreneurs they like totally. the young mo model looking like of course and, uh, and and the message that sends is really terrible it sure is and i find that so encouraging um and i'm loving that for my listeners who are women either going back to work or in a lot of cases changing work they're you know they're 15 years into one space and really like chasing down a different kind of a dream or a different sort of industry and those stories are incredibly encouraging for us to hear but there are some other things i knew i intuitively felt that late bloomers probably have bigger issues around self-doubt hmm. and I can't prove this uh, scientifically, but my wife said, and women have more issues around self-doubt. Hmm. And either that or men just simply are unwilling to talk about their self-doubt, right? which may be the case. So I did a whole chapter on self-doubt and, and how to use it rather than to run away from it hmm. or rather than to confront it with this false, throw your shoulders back, puff up your chest, uh, fake it till you make it sure. attitude, which might be able to get you through a pinch. Mm -hmm. I acknowledge that. But as a long-term strategy, you can't do that. Right. So what, what you have to do is the very first thing you have to do is build an impenetrable wall between your self-worth and your self-doubt. Hmm. that you are a worthy person. I think, again, now I'm more in the realm of opinion, hmm. not fact. But my opinion is, is that if you have a belief in a divine destiny, you believe in God or a higher power hmm. or something along those lines, then maybe it's easier to have an unshakable belief that you have inherent self-worth. If hmm. you're a divine creation then you have inherent self-worth. So just wall it off from self-doubt. Now you can begin to look at self-doubt more clinically. Yes. You can say, okay, it's like a cloud that just passed between you and the sun. You mm. didn't welcome it. It always shows up at the worst possible time. Totally. Right before you're doing a job interview, right before you're giving a speech, always shows up at the worst possible time. Right. And, um, but it's telling you something. And that's the key lesson here. And again, I go back to Carol Dweck, the, the mm -hmm. great author of Mindset and the, and the psychology professor at Stanford. When I interviewed her, she said, learn to look at self-doubt like an annoying friend that always shows up at the worst time. That's good. But has something valuable to say. It's just that they're hmm. really, you don't like seeing them even. You know, you don't like their whiny voice. You don't like whatever totally. it is. But in there is a message. And if you can separate out the message that self-doubt is bringing you without it infecting your self-worth, hmm. 
and you can step back and begin to look at it clinically as you might if you yourself were a psychologist or a coach looking at you from a distance, you would say, well, maybe that self-doubt is bringing me valuable information. Hmm. Maybe the reason I'm nervous about the speech is that I, um, I'm, I, I didn't quite get who would be in the audience. And so hmm. I've, I've concocted a speech that is, you know, that I'm going to have to adapt more to the needs of the audience that I have rather than the audience that I thought I would have. Or you just go, you know, maybe the reason I'm feeling self-doubt about this job interview is that I know in my deep soul that this would be a bad fit. Wow. This is, infor- yeah. this is information you can work with. And then there are all kinds of stuff validated by, by the best psychology and clinical practice out there about steps you can take along the way. So I, I think we all need to look at self-doubt as a friend. To deny it exists is simply to live in denial. And then you fall into this popular culture trap that you just mm-hmm. throw your shoulders back, puff up your chest, chutzpah, you know, all of that. It's not something you can work with for the long term and grow. But neither can you let it infect your self-worth because now you're in a heap of trouble. And then that leads to fatalism and, um, and uh, depression and, mm. and places where you don't want to go. I really appreciate everything you just said. I have a scenario right this minute on my plate where I am wallowing a teeny bit in self-doubt. And even just hearing you say, what can you learn from it? I flipped a little switch in my head listening to you talk and thought, oh, wait, I I see something in there that is a real message to pay attention to. That is incredibly useful, Um, just that sense of mindfulness. Hey, everybody. Jen dropping into the show for just a bonus minute. Okay, look, this is a message for my fellow sisters out there who may share this dilemma in a certain category of shopping. I don't know how you feel, but for me, bra shopping is the worst. So like figuring out your size, whether you need padding or underwire, what kind of neckline and fabrics, just whatever. I end up just grabbing one off the rack that looks kind of right and hope I can just breathe in it. So happy news. I have found an online service that makes bra shopping a whole new experience. Third Love uses these data points generated by literally millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz. Um, and so they design bras with breast size and shape in mind for this, for really a perfect fit, a premium feel. I'm wearing the bra that they said, this is the one for you. And they were exactly spot on right. And listen, they have more than 70 sizes, okay? Including, gosh, I've been waiting for this my whole life their signature half cup sizes. And this is awesome. Every customer has 60 days to wear it and wash it. And if you don't like it, you can return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. So right now they're offering my listeners here at the show 15% off your first order. So here's what you do. Go to thirdlove.com slash for the love to get your perfect fitting bra from the comfort of your own home and 15% off your first purchase. So it's thirdlove.com slash for the love for 15% off today. All right, back to our show. When it comes to our kids, you know, I'm, an, I'm 44. 
So I have a developed brain. I'm, I have the capacity to build that wall. It's hard. It's still a challenge, but I can build that wall. Um, I can have a sense of sort of clinical mindfulness about um, my, my work world, my career world, um, all the competing voices and forces. When it comes to our kids, I've got a 21-year-old, I have an 18-year-old, I have a 16-year-old. They're just so undeveloped. You know, they're, they're so young. They're either still in adolescence or freshly out of it. And so would you, what really pragmatic, like down and gritty advice would you give parents listening um, to how we can aid our kids in this? How do we give them permission to fail and try again? How, how do we point them toward remembering, you know, when they're feeling overwhelmed or disappointed in themselves, what's real and what's true and what's possible? Um, you know, they don't have the life experience we have. They don't have the maturity we have. Um, how would you counsel us parents trying to break this cycle? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing you have to do and always should do, and I know we all try to do this, but we don't always do it perfectly, is that we have to show in everything we do unconditional love for our children. Because if, if they perceive that our love is conditional on their accomplishments, then you've just created a porous wall between their self-doubt and their self-worth. It, th- and that, that's, that's not where you want to go. One of the phenomenons that happened to me as I was researching and writing late bloomers is I had to confront my own guilt and shame over the messages that, that I may have given to our children. Hmm. You know, they're, they're, they weren't academic superstars. I tried not to, you know, push them and say mm-hmm. that they had to be that. But in many ways, I might. It, it might have been just you know, being overly enthusiastic totally. about the, you know, about a conversation we're having with a friend and their kid just, you know, got into Princeton or something. Yeah. Um, one of, uh, one of our boy, um, struggled with weight hmm. and, and, and I was a long distance runner in college and I was, hmm. if anything, too skinny hmm. and I'm still on the thin side. So, you know, I, I'm sure that I said, things, not directly to him, because I never would, that might have indicated to him, you know, that that my love for him was conditional on him um, paying attention to fitness and, and what he mm. eats. So I think uh, no parent is perfect, and we have to work through that. But unconditional love is really important. And then just as we do with our own self-doubt, it's a useful tool to, to step back and look at it clinically. In fact, there's studies that say psychologists have, have uh, validated that, um, uh, you know, a couple of ideas here that are really important. One is to help you get that clinical distance when you're thinking about yourself, don't refer to yourself in the first person. Is it, I am feeling panicked about uh-huh. this talk, you're telling yourself. You step back and you say, why is Jen feeling yeah. panicked about this stock? So you step back referring to yourself in the third person. Mm. And then this idea of reframing that, uh, why is Jen so excited about this talk? Because mm. your body perceives uh, panic and excitement kind of in the same way. So when we look at our kids, I think we have to step back into if a perfect coach existed for these kids, what would this perfect coach say? A perfect coach who starts out from the point of view of unconditional love, 
but nevertheless is there to be a perfect coach. Not the parent with baggage, not the parent with prior histories of uncomfortable conversations with the child, not the parent hmm. who's feeling guilty about not showing unconditional love and now is overreacting and trying to let the kid off the hook and excusing them all the time. What would, if you, if you suddenly became the best coach of your kids that, that ever existed, starting from a point of unconditional love, what would you say to that child, you wouldn't let them off the hook. Hmm. You know, you would, you would, you would coach them into a greater sense of, of themselves. So, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of practical techniques like that that can be very valuable. But hmm. you know, I would say for parents, first of all, forgive yourself for anything that you didn't do perfectly. It's a new day. Um, unconditionally love your child forever. You know, starting now and forever, and then uh, and then. And then just imagine what that uh, unconditional, uh, loving, good coach would be. Hmm. Another thing I believe is really important is for all of us, whether we're dealing with our own um, frustrations about not blooming in middle age or not blooming again, and you know, because you can bloom many times, or worried about our children, is to get into peer groups. Hmm. Peer groups are wonderfully powerful because. The great thing about a peer group, whether it's a church group or any other kind of a peer group, where you're you're in and amongst people who are going through the same walk that you are, is that you don't have prior baggage. Right. You're in the same boat. You can confess what's uh, what's troubling you at this mm. point, but you're there also to help the other people in the peer group. That's of enormous, enormous advantage. Uh, whether you're talking about yourself or you're talking about your children. Mm. That's such great advice, all of it. I love the imagery of a coach that just instantly brings clarity to the fog and kind of lays some paver stones like through that that season of their lives. Let me ask you this question. I think I probably know the answer, but I'd like to hear what you say. Um, do you think there is an optimal time to peak, as you say in your book, or is that even something we can answer? I would go back to uh, Laura Germain's breakthrough 2015 study. She's the neuroscientist at Harvard that did the study with MIT yes. and Massachusetts General Hospital. I would say that it's just very encouraging that we can peak at multiple times. Yes. There's no reason. The, the, the danger of the early bloomer is that they develop that fixed mindset that Carol Dweck talks about. In fact, in Carol Dweck's book, she talks about the tennis player John McEnroe, who was an early bloomer. He won the NCAA singles in tennis as a freshman. Then he dropped out of college and became a pro. And, I mean, he was a prodigy in his teens and early 20s. But he had this, he developed this image around himself that he was the, the king of the jungle in tennis for his generation. And then starting in his mid-20s and late 20s, there were later blooming stars. Right his age said, who began to beat him, and rather than commit himself to uh, doubling down on coaching or fitness or whatever it was, he got trapped in his fixed mindset and and took out his uh, frustrations with, with officials. Right. And so today, he's just as well known for yelling at, at line judges yep. in, at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in front of everybody in the world as he was for, for a quite impressive tennis career. Hmm. He, um, he now knows that. He was asked uh, 
uh, in an interview a couple of years ago, whether he regards himself as one of the top 10 tennis players of all time. And he said, I- I'm paraphrasing him. This isn't an exact quote. He said, I could have been. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, that is, there's not a more hopeful message that you can bloom at any age. That's so exciting. And it's wonderful as grown adults. It's wonderful as parents. Um, because you're right, it is so impossibly easy to buy into the notion of early blooming young adults, that that's the right path or the best path or the only path, um, when in fact, it's just simply not true. And it's not even healthy. And so um, all of this would just create such a healthier, healthier culture. I just want everybody to listen to the drum that you are banging. Um, and I took a bunch of notes while you were talking because, uh, you know, just like anybody, I battle some of these same bad messages in my own life, even inside my own family. Hey guys, Jen here. Uh, First of all, hasn't this series been amazing so far? I am in love with the guests we've had and all their amazing wisdom and insight. And I'm also excited to be working with some really special sponsors. And they offer us all these amazing services uh, that help actually extend the insight that we're really unpacking in this entire series. If you guys don't know about this one, you're going to be so pumped. Blinkist. Do you know about Blinkist? It is this wonderful app that takes the very best, like the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes for your reading or listening. Isn't that amazing? You know, I love to read. I love books and I have so many books on my to read list. You guys should see the notes in my phone. I will be 120 years old before I can finish them all. So I like Blinkist because like, while I'm just driving my car to Target or whatever, I can stay informed and get the gems of some of the greatest books out there. Like the four hour work week outliers, the story of success by Malcolm Gladwell. One of the best, um, just to name a couple from their massive library. So right now Blinkist has a special offer just for you. So here's what you do. Go to Blinkist.com slash for the love. And you get to start a free seven-day trial. Okay, so it's Blinkist. Let me spell it. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Okay, Blinkist.com slash for the love to start your free seven-day trial. Okay, you guys, back to our show. I wonder... um, Rich, if I can ask you just three quick questions, we are asking all of our guests in the health and wellness series, um, these questions. So just kind of top of your head, whatever comes to mind. Um, here's the first one. Uh, what's one either small or simple thing that you do every day to take care of yourself? I no longer eat snacks. I don't eat in between meals and I, and, and, um, uh, and we don't eat dessert except on special occasions. So, so I try to keep my calorie intake uh, reasonable without getting obsessed about it, just with simple things like that. You feel better? Oh, Having yeah. That? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I bet. yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm glad to say I'm not at my peak weight, um, but I don't get on the scale every day or think about, I don't right. get into the weeds simply by not eating 
snacks by not yeah. having potato chips and things like that around the house has been a real benefit. That's a great lever to pull. Um, how about this? And you've listed so many amazing leaders and thinkers and um, clinicians. By the way, listeners, as always, we will have all of this linked over on the transcript page. Everybody that Rich mentioned, we will have a link to. Um, but who would you, if you had one teacher maybe that you have really learned from, that it's impacted your either physical or mental or spiritual or emotional health in any way um, that you would recommend to us? Who might... Who's somebody that you would reach for? Well, he's no longer with us, but I think about him all the time. And he was the great football coach, Bill Walsh. Sure. Who led the 49ers from the bottom of the league in, in the NFL in the late 70s to three Super Bowls in a short period of time. And then he left the franchise in a condition to win three more. And I mm -hmm. used to spend quite a lot of time with him interviewing him for a column that he wrote for me. And I learned so much from him. Now, he was a late bloomer. He didn't get his head coaching job of significance of any kind until he was 46 at, oh, at Stanford great. University and then not in 49ers until a couple of years after that. Hmm. But he was always experimenting. And he was a guy that had a lot of self-doubt, but he didn't hide it. He was, I expected when I first met him that he was kind of the stand-up straight military general demeanor. Okay. And he was the opposite. He was like a neurotic professor. <laughs> used to uh, walk Civil War battlefields and other great battlefields trying to figure out what the strategy was and whether wow. there are any applicable lessons to football. He learned, he got mm. the first insight for what was became known as the West Coast offense of a lot of short passes spreading the receivers around the, the field when um, when he saw uh, a high school basketball practice and, and the team was practicing inbounding the ball against the full court press and suddenly the light bulb went off for him. Hmm. So he was always learning. He dealt with his self-doubt openly and honestly in the way that I described earlier. And uh, I think about him often. Again, I'm, I'm doing this from memory. I'm not looking directly at the, the quote as I took it down. Yeah. But we talked about confidence. And he said, with outrage, he said, he said, confidence will get you your first job or two. Hmm. Confident, but but uh, I can't tell you how many confident blowhards <laughs> burn out at age 40 and how many confident blowhards that I've been passing in my later blooming career. Wow, that's fabulous. I love that. Um, that's so great. Okay, here's the last question. We actually ask every guest in every single series. This is one of uh, our favorite questions. We, I learned it from one of my favorite teachers. Um, her name is Barbara Brown-Taylor. Anyway, your answer could be whatever you want it to be. It can be really like serious and poignant, or it can be very small and silly or anything in between. It's completely up to you. The question is this, what is saving your life right now? Uh, what is saving my life right now is this mission to spread the gospel of late blooming yes. far wide. Your friend asked me, I said, uh, given the uh, initial reception, do you feel happy? And I said, no, happy's not the right word. I actually feel a death. Hmm. And I feel a death of my old self. I feel oh. and that old self was more ego-driven, self-centric, would have checked the Amazon ratings every hour. And I feel a death of that and the awakening of something that I am becoming around this deep-seated mission hmm. to talk about uh, the, the pitfalls of this early blooming obsession why neuroscience and psychology doesn't support it at all, and then what we must do to, to bloom many times and to have our children bloom many times. 
It's good work. It's a really good message. I think it has the potential to really turn the tides, um, definitely for our kids and certainly for theirs. And I meant it when I said I wish everybody would read this and listen to this. I, I, I feel trapped in this culture of early and more. And so I'm really grateful that, number one, that you care. Number two, that you've devoted so many years to this research and study and writing process and now the evangelism of your, of your work. And so count on me to, um, do this. I will, I will bang the drum for you and, um, we will definitely post links to the book and to some of your other interviews around it over, um, on our transcript page, anything else, anywhere, anywhere else that my listeners can find you if they're wanting more information. Sure. You can go to richcarlgard.com. Carlgard uh, is K-A-R-L-G-A-A-R-D. Uh, it has a link to the book. And then you go straight to the book web page, which is late bloomer singular. The book title is late bloomers plural, oh, yeah. but late bloomer.com. Great. Perfect. We'll link over to that too. Rich, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm so happy to have met you. I'm thrilled that somebody in your position with the degree of influence that you have um, has taken on this mantle. This feels really important and really timely and necessary for the health of not only ourselves, but our kids. And so um, just couldn't appreciate you more. Thank you for your time and your expertise today. Thank you so much. Let's go out and start a national conversation around this. I love it. Let's do it. I found that so interesting. I, somewhere in the middle of that, you guys, I was, my brain was thinking, how quickly can I get this episode mixed and edited back in my inbox so I can send it to my kids? I really want them to hear this. I mean, we are doing this work in our house right now with my college age kids and this weird sense of dissatisfaction and discouragement um, that they have both experienced in college, even having sort of followed this path that Rich talked about. I, I'm just telling you this, this episode really, it, I, I don't know the other word to say. It's just kind of ministered to me and gave me a lot of hope, even not even in my own career. Anyhow, I hope that was useful to you. And uh, I would love for us to buy into this message as parents and help break this terrible downward trend that we are sort of passing off to our kids. Um, You guys, as I mentioned, go over to ginhatmaker.com. Underneath the podcast tab, we'll have all of this. Um, all these amazing people Rich mentioned, his book, his social handles, um, any other like really cool interviews he's done for the book that I think you might want to listen to. So that is a wonderful resource. Amanda builds it out every single week. Please take advantage of it. We do that for you when you're like, whoa, there was a lot in there and I want to see it with my eyeballs and have it condensed in one place. That's your thing. In addition, we have the whole written transcript. Um, should you ever want to read back through it or cut and paste any of it um, or just save it? Um, thank you for sharing our podcast with your friends, with your people, with your small groups, with your kids. We love that. Um, thanks for posting on socials your favorite episodes and sending in the people that you love. And then, of course, as always, thanks for subscribing. If you haven't, go subscribe. Um, we love our subscriber community and it just means this shows up in your inbox without you having to do a single thing every single week. It just comes to you without you trying. Um, so anyhow, this series is just really, I I hope it's, um, nurturing to you. 
I hope that when you hear health and wellness, um, that we can begin to toggle the idea of what that means, that this is not diet culture or some terrible idea that's been attached to that, but rather our minds and our souls and our spirits and our bodies, our families, our careers, just this, this holistic idea of what makes us healthy and well. So you guys, thank you for joining me and I'll see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.